Verse 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, 1 Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy was, uh, what was Timothy to Paul? Timothy was like many other men to Paul. He was one of Paul's right-hand men. Paul had a job to do. He would send Timothy to do it. If he wanted something done, some work accomplished, Timothy would be the one he would send, or maybe one of the other two or three or four that were around him at the time. And Timothy, Paul did have a job for Timothy to do. Timothy needed to go to Ephesus to do some work, because they needed some help in Ephesus to get things established. Paul had been to Ephesus, and Timothy needed to go and take Paul's message to them, some things that they needed to change, some things that they needed to work on. Now, the background on Ephesus, uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll know in the book of Acts that it talks about some missionary journeys that Paul took. Paul first took a missionary journey with Barnabas, and they went to some places not too far from Antioch, uh, but it was still a lot of traveling as we would understand traveling. It would be kind of like if you and I were to take some long-distance foot, foot uh, trips around the uh, various counties of southern Indiana. Well, that was Paul and Barnabas on their first journey, and they would go from town to town and they would preach. And it wasn't an easy thing to do. And when they got back to Antioch, they found out that there was some discussion in Jerusalem about uh, how to treat the Gentiles. So they went down to the to Jerusalem, to be at the Council of Jerusalem, where they talked about how the church was going to look at the Gentile converts. And then they went back to Antioch, and they were sent out again. And this time, uh, Paul and Barnabas divided over whether to go together, because Barnabas wanted to take John, and on the last trip, John had kind of abandoned him, so Paul was upset with John, so John... John couldn't go with Paul because Paul didn't want to take him for fear he would abandon him again. So Paul took Silas and Barnabas took John and went to Cyprus. Paul took Silas and they started going, revisiting the churches. And this time they expanded their vision a little bit because the Holy Spirit spoke with Paul and said, we want you to come into Macedonia. And so Paul started going into Macedonia and they started preaching in that area. Now that's bigger than the counties of southern Indiana. Uh, Paul's expanding his walk, his trek with uh, Silas as he goes. And it's going to take him a few years to accomplish this. And the process of going along, he goes to Corinth. And then after he leaves Corinth, he he stops by at Ephesus. And there he and and a woman named Priscilla and her husband Aquila are talking with the Ephesians. Paul decides he's going to go on. He spends just a little time there talking in the synagogue. He decides he's going to go on, and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila. While he's gone on, Paul goes on and goes to other places. Uh, Someone comes along named Apollos, if you know the story. Apollos starts teaching in Ephesus, and he's teaching uh, a doctrine that's not quite right because he wasn't fully instructed in who Jesus was. So Priscilla and Aquila take him aside and they instruct him more fully as to who Jesus is. And Apollos is excited. He goes on and he goes on to Corinth and he starts preaching uh, 
more things there, a fuller gospel, a truer message in Corinth. Meanwhile, Paul comes back to Ephesus, and Paul finds that there are a group of men in Ephesus, 12 men, who have been baptized into John's baptism, but really have no knowledge of Jesus Christ. Maybe they had been informed by Apollos. We're not sure. But they had not been informed about Jesus Christ. So Paul preaches to them. They believe on Jesus Christ. They're baptized, and they are given and filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul, with these men and others, starts a work in Ephesus that will take him some time. He goes to the synagogue and he preaches and teaches there for three months. And guess what happens? They decide in the synagogue, most of them, that they don't like him there, so they throw him out. And so he goes next door or close by to the school. He teaches at this school for two years. And it's at this point in this time that there is tremendous success with the gospel in Ephesus. Paul is preaching about Jesus. Many people are believing on Jesus. Many, many people. They're so affected in the city that it's, it's having a huge impact. It even affects the economy because people are starting to throw away their good luck charms. Uh, they're discontinuing their calls to the horoscope hotline. They're turning off every TV show that has to do with homosexuality or talking to the dead or voyeurism or has the word reality in it. Uh, now wait, that's not really Ephesus, is it? They didn't have TV then. But um, Ephesus was like that. They didn't have TV, but they had scrolls with horoscopes on them, and they had live reality theater at the Temple of Artemis. And that's how their life was lived. But they were so affected by the gospel and so changed as Paul preached to them that they took their scrolls and their idols and their horoscope materials and they piled them up in a big pile and they burned them. And it was a tremendous amount of money that they just let go up in smoke. Paul's preaching, God's work through Paul, was actually affecting the economy because there was an outcry from the Idol Builders Guild in town. They were upset because people's, you know, idol sales were way down in, in Ephesus at the time. And so the guys who were building them were upset, and they started to riot. And it got so bad that the town clerk had to come and read them the riot act, and so they, they succumbed to his instruction, and the riot was over. Paul worked a little while longer with the people of Ephesus. He gave some instructions to the people, the leaders there. And then he goes on and says his farewell. Sometime later, he writes to them, hitting on some major points in the book of Ephesians. If you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, he talks to them about salvation by grace through faith. He talks to them as Gentiles, because most of them were, about how they are fellow heirs in the family of God, that they are part of spiritual Israel. Even though they weren't born as Jews, they were the recipients of the heritage of of the gift that was given to Abraham. He talked to them about stopping their sin and being imitators of God. He talked to them about marriage and family and how they are patterned after a divine example. He talked to them about spiritual armor and protecting yourself from the enemy that would want to destroy you. And he sent another one of his 
uh, assistance there, I think, to deliver the book of Ephesians to them, to deliver that letter. What we call the book of Ephesians was a letter. And that was Tychicus. And then we come to 1 Timothy. Timothy has been sent to Ephesus. Or he's been left in Ephesus on the way through from one place to another. And Timothy's job is to deal with some issues, some difficulties that need to be dealt with. Now you think about all the things I've talked about up to now, the history I've told you about Ephesus. There's a lot of work involved in that. Consider the amount of labor that's involved. Jay was talking about this small Bible study they've had, they had had for, for so many years. Consider the amount of labor that was involved, even down to loading the kids in the car or babysitting the kids or getting the babysitter, all of the logistics that have to be accomplished to do all those kinds of things so that the work of the kingdom can get done. And think about Paul and think about Tychicus and think about Timothy as they're working with Ephesus. That's just one of the places that they went to. One of the people, the people groups that they went to. Think about the labor that they had to give themselves to, the work that they were about. And then we come to 1 Timothy 4.10. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, first of all, as we look at this verse, let's deal with the phrase in it that gives us the theological jitters. Do you see that phrase that gives you the theological jitters? What does he mean when he says that he's the Savior of all men, especially of believers? It does not mean universalism. It does not mean that everyone is saved or that everyone will go to heaven. We know that that's inconsistent with the rest of Scripture, don't we? It's even inconsistent logically with the words because if it were universalism that he, t- that he were talking about, think about how the, verse, how the meaning of the verse would go. It would be like uh, the Savior of all men, especially of that special group of people he saves. You see how illogical that is? He's the Savior of all men, especially of that special group of people that he actually saves. doesn't make any sense. This is not the meaning of Savior here in this verse. Here, Savior needs to be understood as both the reality of God saving in that special way and also the reality of the general benefit that God gives to all men in that he delivers and protects them, not just as the specific benefit he gives to the elect. He does particularly save the elect. And so he is especially their Savior. But in this verse, it's not talking just specifically about that. He is the deliverer and protector of all men. Where's the verse that you can think of right away that talks about the same kind of thing? Well, think about Matthew 5, starting at verse 43. Let me read that to you. Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even do, do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more do you, what are you, excuse me, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God gives the rain and the sun both on the elect, those he will save particularly, and on those who he will not save particularly. The good and the evil, the just and the unjust. And what does he say in in Matthew 5? He says, be like God in this way. You be like God in this way. He's talking about godliness in Matthew 5. About being like God, emulating God with your life and how you relate to others. And it's interesting that in the context of 1 Timothy 4, you have the same thing. Just before verse 10, he talks about godliness and how they are supposed to discipline themselves to godliness in verse 8. And so the context is the same and the instruction is the same. Godliness is what's at stake. And we are to be like God in that he's the savior of all men. He protects all men. He delivers all men in this life. But not all of them to salvation. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. But not all that that receive the sun and the rain uh, will receive his salvation in Jesus Christ. Occasionally, there is a reference to God's common grace in the same context that we are admonished in the scripture to godliness and being like him. And this is an example to us. Now, I just want to step aside here for a moment and say that if you're here and you know that you're a recipient of God's general grace, his sunshine and his rain, if you know that God generally protects you and gives you life and health, then you have something in common with all of us. Everyone here has that grace in common. We are generally held by God's protection. But there's something else that we all have in common, and that is that we're all sinners. We're all born descendants of the great first offender, Adam. And we ourselves regularly offend God in our words and our thoughts and our actions. And for this, we don't deserve sunshine and rain, do we? That's not what we deserve. We deserve punishment. And in fact, we do incur death spiritually in our lives. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. That being the case, the message of the gospel is that God made it possible for us to have life who are dead in sin. And it says in John 1 that God became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Jesus Christ that it's talking about. In Philippians 2 it says that although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. 
the form of a man. He was God. He took on the form of the man. So God the Son lived out a perfect life on this earth. He died a death of substitution. He took a place of those who would trust in him by receiving, uh, by receiving him. And he took the penalty for their sins. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. And by doing so, he exhibited the fact that he can not only raise those who trust in him physically from the dead, but spiritually as well. And so those who trust in Jesus Christ can believe that they will be raised from the dead both physically and that they are made alive spiritually. And it has nothing to do with what we do. This is the gospel. This is what it is to be a Christian. This is Christianity. Any other religion that you would find would try to sell you some idea that you somehow will be able to get God to merit you and receive you. But not Christianity. We realize that there is nothing we can do to merit God's favor, but that in fact He has done something. Something was done by God outside of us that we can have by faith that will deliver us from our sin and from the penalty of it. If you're here this morning and you're not certain about your deliverance personally from the penalty of your sin, if you think this morning that you can somehow appease God on your own behalf and with your own strength, I would warn you not to continue in that vein. And I would also encourage you to speak with someone here this morning. Speak with Jay who came up and and spoke to us. I would be glad to talk with you after the service. But, but understand what the salvation of Jesus Christ means because it is what Christianity is about. But my focus this morning has to do with our labor and our strife as we see here in the verse, verse 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. And it's also the focus of what Paul says in verse 15 when he says, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Take pains with these things and be absorbed with them, so that your progress will be evident to all. There are many these things listed in 1 Timothy. If you read through them, I think the the phrase these things is used eight times. And I would encourage you later today to take your Bible out and read through the book of 1 Timothy. Very, very short, very easy for you to read. And read all of the things, all of the times where he talks about these things, and look at the context of them. In 1 Timothy 5, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1, 5 and 6, he talks about sound doctrine as these things. This is the work that Timothy was supposed to do. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Timothy was sent, or left, at Ephesus to give sound instruction, to help the men who were teaching unsound doctrine to know what was true that they needed to teach. The goal of our instruction is love. It comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That was a doctrinal statement. 
That's something that Timothy had to convey to these men as they were teaching. And apparently some of them were teaching strange kinds of teachings that had something to do with genealogies. Maybe it was an early form of Mormonism. I don't know. Don't they do the genealogical thing in, the, in Utah? Okay. And some of them were following worldly fables. And I don't know what the fables were all about. I remember some worldly fables that I've heard in the last few years. I remember a, a health and wealth preacher teaching about if there had not been any sin in the garden, that delivering babies would have been a totally different thing. The women were going to give birth out of their side. I guess they had a pouch or something like a kangaroo. And this was his teaching that he taught. And people listened to him and spent time wasting their lives on something so stupid and idiotic and fruitless. There's been a recently a, a, a book published. Um, I can't remember the name of it. It's this, it's this book about numbers and how you take the Bible and you run this mathematical equation on the original languages and you can start predicting all the things that are happening and see all these things that are happening with the Bible. That is just so fruitless. It's evil. It's an evil thing. Paul wanted Timothy to start intercepting these errors at Ephesus. Here in this church, pastors and elders spend a tremendous amount of time talking about and praying about and studying the Scripture so that we can intercept errors here. So that errors aren't passed on to you. So that we don't have the number book written, uh, listed out in the foyer for you to pick up and study when you go home. You see? And it's not all just errors. Sometimes there's just a lot of things that clamor for people's attention and clamor for the attention of the church. We get things in the mail weekly, uh, stuff. And why does it always come to my desk? I don't know. But we get this stuff in the mail and it's asking us to participate in some special day. Take your church into this special day. Or it's asking us to participate in this special program. If you would just do this special program, then this would, this would happen. If you would just join in this special program, and it's going to be this way. And I look at it, and there's not really anything wrong with what they're saying. It's just a distraction. There's just something else there. When I was pastoring in Toledo, they had uh, something called March for Jesus. Anybody ever heard of March for Jesus? Two or three people. Well, they did March for Jesus. Thousands of people went to this march. People from my church organized it. They were in charge of it. But I didn't march. Because I looked at it and I thought, you know, this is going to come and this is going to go. And it has come and it has gone. And nothing's going to be the result. And the church was driven to distraction while it was happening. Because Jesus has given us all kinds of things to do, right? Have you read the Bible? All kinds of things He wants us to do. He says specifically, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But He doesn't say march. He doesn't say get a, get a parade permit to march and, and take out a Jesus march and get thousands of people to do this. So Timothy was there giving them instruction about what to do and what not to do. He was there to give them instruction on authority. And I won't read it, but I'll just ask you to look at 1 Timothy 3:14 through 15 and 1 Timothy 5, 7. If you want to jot it down, you can read it later. 
But this has to do with the practice of widows and caring for the widows that are in the church. And it has to do with the, the choosing and the working of elders and deacons in the church there at Ephesus and how they should organize the church. And it was another part of Timothy's work, what he was supposed to give himself to, what he was supposed to be uh, painting himself with, being absorbed in. And it was a difficult, difficult task. If you remember, there was no welfare system at the time. If you remember the book of Acts, you remember when we first started to see the first welfare system in the church for the widows. If you remember in the book of Acts, there were 12 men, and then there were how many? 120 people. And then there were how many in Acts chapter 2? After Peter preached. Or was it chapter 3 when it first says? 2,000. Can you imagine trying to put the structure together? In chapter 4, two chapters later, it says there were 5,000 men. And if you can assume the women followed along, there were probably 10,000 plus people by the time they got to chapter 4. Can you imagine the structure that they had to put in place? Because it says they, they met in homes. They took meals together. They listened to the apostles' teaching and dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. They did all of those things. They had to put all that structure together in Acts chapter 2. Can you imagine what it was like? A pastor named uh, John Piper, I heard him giving a sermon. I heard a sermon that he gave about this, in fact, this past week about Acts chapter 2. And he said said that it was... uh, Wherever the church is is doing what it should be doing, evangelizing, discipling, etc., it's chaos. It's chaos, but it's beautiful chaos because it's men and women being saved from their sin. And then we just have to work feverishly, painfully, to make process and to make way. And so Timothy had to do. He had to get all these people together. He had to start uh, membership classes and go through the membership classes. Can you imagine the membership classes of Acts chapter 4? 5,000 men, 10,000 plus people. So Timothy did. He structured and he built the church in Ephesus and he placed the elders and the deacons and he deployed them. Even here, do you realize the structure that we have? Do you realize what it takes to do just the very basic things we do here in our church? Most of you are involved at some level. Do you know that how close we came to having no bathrooms in the foyer this morning? Now, a lot of us look at the foyer bathrooms and we think, you know, these bathrooms aren't that exciting. But I'll tell you, we came this far from having portable toilets because we had a water, a, a, a water break outside the back of the building in the old part that had burned down. And if it hadn't been for some of the deacons out there two days digging and reconstructing and making calls to find out who uh, had put in that water system and who could remember where they laid the pipes and renting a trencher or a tractor and digging the hole and fixing the pipes, we wouldn't just have a simple thing as a couple of toilets in the back of the foyer this morning. But that's what it's like, the structure and the work of the church It's that kind of way. We talk about small groups and we understand that it's going to take work. It's going to take labor, sometimes painful labor, to do what God wants us to do. 
but it's a joyful labor. In 1 Timothy 6.11, he says uh, another one of these things to look at. He says these are the things you should flee from, the love of money. Flee from the love of money and pursue rather these other things. We have a job to do here. We have evangelism to do. We have discipleship to do. We have leadership training to do. We have facility challenges. We have building challenges. And I'll reiterate what Wayne says. Please be in prayer. We have a small group implementation plan. We have defending the truth against error. We have making coffee on Sunday morning and washing the sheets in the nursery. All of these things that we do here. And Paul says, do it. Painful. Labor at it. It's the work of God's kingdom. And then he tells Timothy what to have them build the instruction on. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he says, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that, they may, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of, our God, of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. We need to have prayer for our church, prayer for our members, prayer for our leaders, prayer for our structure, prayer for the secular authorities through which we oftentimes have to work. Pray, church. Pray. Looking at chapter 4, we need to profit from godliness, and we will see profit from godliness. But have nothing to do, verse 7, it says, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We need to heed the prescriptions that Timothy gives, or Paul gives to Timothy, the things he prescribes. In chapter 4, verse 11, he says, he says to Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. And look at the surrounding verses to see what he's talking about. In chapter 5, verse 7, he says, prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. What's a prescription? You know. It's the thing your doctor writes out. And so you can take it to the drugstore, and so you can pick up your medication. And that's your prescription. Well, that's what Paul says to Timothy. Give this, to the, give this dose of medication to these people. Prescribe these things to them. He says, take pains with your labor. The pains set before us, some are familiar pains to us that we have to deal with every week, every day. 
in all the aspects of our church life. Some are unfamiliar pains to us. There are always new pains coming to us that we have to deal with in our labors as Christians so that we may see the glory of God. He says, pay attention to doctrine and practice. In chapter 4, verse 16, he says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. What you believe and what you do, pay attention, Timothy. In the same verse, he says, persevere in all these things. Pay attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Persevere, Timothy. Persevere, church, in what God has given us to do. You know, I was looking in First Timothy for the reason. In First Timothy chapter 4, for the reason that Paul gives to Timothy for doing these things. And there's only, only one place where he specifically spells out the reason. And it's in verse 10, where we started. He says, we have fixed our hope on the living God. We have fixed our hope on the living God. Not just our Savior in the common sense, but also specifically our Savior as we are believers. One day, all of our labors will be more than just hope. They will be realized. We will see the living God on whom we have fixed our hope as we have worked and labored. Timothy already sees him. Timothy's done with his labor. He sees the living God, the one he hoped in. I'll tell a story in closing. When my son was born, he's the one sitting in the front row here telling me that I'm three minutes over. Um, well, my wife, she had, uh, when she had uh, Ben, when she carried Ben pregnancy, uh, she had some of the same symptoms she had with other, our other child that was, uh, uh, that she carried, uh, Kimberly. But with Ben, she had this, uh, some of you women understand this acid reflux. She had to sleep sometimes sitting up. Had a hard time breathing because he was so big, and he still is. And um, I remember as we went into the hospital, the uh, evening where she went into labor, we went into the hospital, and she was just despairing. She said, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. Because the contractions were so intense. You know, they weren't anything like contractions they told us were going to be where, you know, you, you had a contraction and you waited five, eight minutes. Nice rest time. Sipped a little juice. And then you had another contraction. Well, her contractions came about 40, 50 seconds apart. So they were just constant. And she said, I don't know if I can do this. And as she got closer and closer to the delivery, she said, I don't ever want to do this again. And sometimes we feel that pain, don't we? As we labor for God, we don't ever want to do this again. That's how we feel. But I'll tell you something. When they gave my son to my wife that night or that morning, 
4 o'clock in the morning, when they gave my son to her, she looked at me, and I'm not kidding, she looked at me and she said, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Well, so it is for us with our labors for the Lord. Sometimes, even in this world, we will see that joyful fruit and we'll say, let's do it again. And other times, we will go through the pain of our labor and only have the hope of God's glory before us that will carry us through. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Let's pray.